Managing and containing bids for hegemony on the continent of Europe is a long-standing theme, in some ways the central theme, of the history of statecraft in the West. While in the 20th and 21st centuries, that has meant opposition first to Germany and then to Russia, for several centuries before that, the problem was one of what to do about France. And France's repeated attempts, including under Napoleon, and before that the Bourbons, to control all that lay before it. But there was a time, and this story takes us back to the middle of the 16th century, when France itself was prostrate and weak at the mercies of the Habsburgs and Spain. Our subject today is the multi-generational project undertaken by men like Sully, Richelieu, and Mazarin and their sovereigns of building the diplomatic, economic, and military power that would turn the tables and render the challenge of the Spanish Empire a thing of the past. The relevant dimensions of this conversation for today are, I hope, obvious. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. For maps, photos, and more School of War content, follow along on Instagram at School of War. Just tap the link in the show notes and subscribe. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. I'm delighted to welcome to the show today Iskander Rahman. He is the Axon Johnson Fellow at the Kissinger Center at Johns Hopkins SICE. He is the author of numerous publications. I think I first came across your work. It was a, an essay on Polybius and Polybius's relevance to present day policy concerns. And I can't remember, was that War on the Rocks or Texas National Security Review? Where did, where did that show up? Yes, that actually might. So, so I actually wrote two, two different essays on Polybius. So one in War on the Rocks initially, and then another slightly longer one in Engelsberg Ideas. Got it. Got it. Iskander focuses on the connections of, of strategic history with present-day strategic concerns in a way that I find really fascinating. And he is, and the subject for our discussion today is he is a contributor to the New Makers of Modern Strategy project and book with a chapter on 16th and 17th century French grand strategy. Iskander, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So could we start with a sort of big picture question? What is it about you know, the strategic history of early modern Europe generally, or of France's grand strategy during the period that you're focused on here, that could possibly have anything to do with the concerns of Americans or, or Europeans or Russians or Chinese for that matter here in the early 21st century? Sure. So I think it's, it's a period that most people may only have a passing familiarity with. For the casual outside observer, it may seem a tad complex, even daunting, with its medley of kings, queens, regions, treaties, etc. But I think that there is so much timeliness and relevance to be found in examining this particular case study of great power rivalry, France and Spain's great power rivalry, which is probably one of the best documented case studies we have of great power rivalry. And also one of the longest examples we have of great power rivalry. It's extended really from the beginning of the Italian wars of the Renaissance, so 1494, 
to one could argue the the peace of the Pyrenees and the, so the negotiation of the peace of the Pyrenees in 1659. So spanning really two centuries of history with Game of Thrones style intrigues, massacres, battles, a huge cast of larger than life characters in both Spain and France and huge amounts of source material as well in the forms of diplomatic dispatches, correspondence, archives, etc. But this was the period when early modern states were really coming into fruition and building out their bureaucratic apparatuses. So there's a veritable treasure trove of information there for both historians of the period and contemporary scholars of strategy. And can I ask sort of a personal question? How did you first come to focus on this period, which otherwise might say it doesn't seem like the kind of thing one might accidentally stumble onto, but perhaps that is the, the story here. Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'd always had a passing interest in Richelieu, who of course will be known to most of your listeners primarily as the mustachio twirling villain in the Free Musketeers. He's mentioned, of course, in most, in, in most classic volumes on the history of strategy, whether it's Kissinger's work on, on the history of diplomacy, for example, as being one of the seminal figures in European statecraft. But I realized a few years ago that I actually didn't know that that much about him. And having been brought up in, in both UK and France, I, I was raised perfectly bilingual. So I thought that I was quite well positioned to delve back into the sources, read more about him. And uh, I ended up producing some work for the Office of Net Assessment, a 100-page monograph, which examined Richelieu's grand strategy during the Thirty Years' War, which was then adapted into a Texas National Security Review article. And from then on, I was really just completely hooked by this period, early modern diplomatic and military history. And that, I guess, is how I kind of fell into it. But uh, yes, the point of departure was a nagging curiosity, really. My pop culture reference for Richelieu, which is now horribly outdated, is Under the Red Robe, which is a great, I think, uh, yeah. 1930s Terrific. movie starring Conrad Veidt, which I got onto because Veidt is an actor who appears in a number of Powell Pressburger British movies of the era. It's, it's a lot of fun. And yeah. It absolutely, yeah. totally. It portrays the character you described, but but also with due credit to his, uh, his savviness. Yeah. So, well, let's go. Let's go one back from Richelieu then. So you, you, in Newmakers of Modern Strategy, you, you tell the story of this period through the, the careers and, and principal focuses of the, the three chief French strategists of the era, um, Sully, then Richelieu, and then Mazarin. Let's, let's start with the first and with Sully and, and maybe start by telling us a bit about, you know, as it were, the France that he inherits. What, are, what, what is it like to be a French statesman? at this period in history? What are the principal challenges? Sure. So I think all three of the characters have lead remarkable existences. They're all larger than life personalities. They couldn't be more different, different in temperament with their own strengths and weaknesses, very different personal backgrounds. I would say if you had to choose to be in a, in a foxhole with someone, you would perhaps choose to be with Sully if you wanted someone to sort of map out your career and future plans, you would perhaps go with Richelieu, the master planner. And the person who'd probably be the most fun to get a drink or dinner with would definitely be Mazarin, who was renowned for being a consummate charmer. He brought that Italian charm with him to France. Sully is, is an extremely well-known figure in France. 
There's a massive imposing statue of Sully outside the French parliament. Perhaps if you've been on vacation in France, you may have driven along these elmed line country roads, which are a ubiquitous feature of the French countryside. Those, a lot of those elms were originally planted by Sully as part of his massive program of national industrialization and rearmament. And actually some of the elms that he planted still exist to this day. But Sully, so to, to, to give a sort of brief overview of his background, he, he was born into a, a pretty august aristocratic family. He himself was a Protestant, a Huguenot, so a member of France's Calvinist minority during the wars of religion. And he actually, his, his, his defining early life experience that I briefly allude to in the chapter, but which is recounted with gripping, almost harrowing detail in his memoirs, was his survival of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in August of 1572. He was only 12 years old and he was in Paris for the wedding of Henry of Navarre, who would later become Henry IV, uh, the King of France to the king's, to the French king's sister. And this, this in many ways was the original Red Wedding, if you will. It was designed to bring peace and concord to the kingdom of France after a long period of civil war, brutal wars of religion, a union in between a Protestant lord, Henry of Navarre, and the Catholic princess, Margaret of Valois, who was the, who was the sister of the king. Four days after the wedding, there is the infamous massacre. In and of itself, that is a absolutely riveting story, which would take an entire podcast to narrate. So I won't delve into too much detail, but basically what happens is that what commences as a sort of targeted assassination operation against leading Protestant nobles in Paris devolves into a general pogrom, basically, of all Huguenots living in Paris. Sully, at the time, he's 12 years old. He's just pledged allegiance to Henry of Navarre. And he only manages to survive the massacre by taking refuge with a Catholic friend of his family who runs a local private Catholic school. There's this riveting description of him making his way through the streets of Paris, watching fellow Protestants get butchered by mobs and getting stopped by the city guard who were also killing Protestants and only managing to escape from their clutches by brandishing a Catholic prayer book and pretending to be Catholic. So I think that that was very much a, a formative experience in his life. It, it inculcated in him a, a passion for order, a distaste of religious fanaticism of any stripe, a staunch form of patriotism because he, he viewed foreign involvement and particularly Spanish involvement in France's religious wars as having contributed to the tragedy of St. Bartholomew. And he himself will say, for example, that he, uh, I mean, his memoirs, that he was never tainted with that bitter zeal, which the difference of religion inspires. And what I think is remarkable about his career is that he, he remained a Huguenot all of his life, despite coming under considerable pressure from both his future king and patron, Henry of Navarre, who becomes Henry IV and converts to Catholicism, he, at various junctures, pressures Sully to convert. Sully refuses to convert. His own children become Catholic. His brothers uh, were Catholic. They even fought on opposite sides during the religious wars. He chose to remain Protestant. And he also played an enormous role, and we can delve into this in a little bit more depth, as, and was basically the great centralizer 
of France under the, un, under the reign of Henry IV. During a period of ten years peace, he occupied various ministerial roles, a superintendent of finance was his most important role, that he was also the Grand Voyer de France, which means that he was basically in charge of all infrastructure projects. He was also the Grand Master of Artillery, and he, man he brought his considerable military experience to bear. I mean, that role of standardizing and modernizing France's artillery, turning it into a veritable service arm with the French military. He, 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 he was also the master of fortification. So an individual with prodigious amounts of energy, not the easiest personality. We have a lot of testimony from his contemporaries and, and emissaries from other nations saying that they found him very, very hard to deal with. He was known for having a foul temper for being incredibly proud, but I'm indubitably one of the most consequential figures, I think, in Ancien Regime history. So as he comes to power, what is the situation between France and Spain? What are, what are Spanish strengths? What are French weaknesses? Because the, the story you, you tell here, one, is, is, is one of a, of a reversal of situations from you know, Spanish or Habsburg if not primacy, then certainly superiority over France to to something like the opposite a hundred years later. So what's the situation and what are and then second question, what are the what are the initial focuses of Sully as he as he seeks to reverse the situation? Sure, sure. Well well I don't know if it might be helpful to, to sort of go back in time a little bit and talk a little bit more about the genesis of Franco Spanish rivalry. So I mentioned earlier that, that France and Spain have basically been at loggerheads since since, since the beginning of the 16th century, really. And they have fought a series of wars, the Italian wars of the Renaissance for control of the Italian peninsula. Those wars came to an end in 1559 with the Treaty of Cato Cambrésis, whereby France was basically ejected from most of its territorial possessions in Italy. It held on to a few, a few garrisons, but it was, it basically signals France's defeat in the Italian wars. And for a whole generation of martially minded nobles, this was viewed as a terrible humiliation. And then when one adds this sort of Dolphos feeling amongst the French aristocracy, a lot of whom did not accept the terms of the peace treaty initially, refused to evacuate, expressed their anger at the French king. Henry II at the time for having agreed to this. For, for example, we have some famous chronicles of the period by this man called Brontem, who was a French noble who served in Italy. And upon the signing of the treaty, he wrote, in the space of an hour with a simple gesture at the quill, we were forced to surrender everything and to tarnish all our glorious past victories with a few drops of ink. So when one adds the humiliation of France's defeat in the Italian wars, and then a long period of extended political instability following the death of the French King Henry II in a freak jousting accident, which is something that's straight out of Game of Thrones. He's, he is basically celebrating the signing of this peace, jousting with, his, with the Scottish captain of his bodyguards. His advisors are asking him to stop jousting because it could be dangerous. He insists on continuing. The Scottish bodyguard accidentally shatters a lance on the king's helmet. The point, the, the sort of splinters of the lance go through his visor, through one of his eyes, into his brain. He ends up dying a horrible death. 
And then he is subsequently replaced by a series of weak kings, younger kings, his son. And France basically tumbles into a long period of civil and religious wars, political instability, civil and religious wars. And throughout most of this period, Spain is heavily involved in interfering in France's Byzantine court politics, supporting various factions throughout France, doing everything they can basically to weaken France's reemergence as a potential peer competitor. For example, there was an advisor to Philip II of Spain, who at one point rather smugly says, the wars in France bring peace for Spain, and peace in Spain brings wars for France. Now, when Sully comes into the picture, it's during the last decade or so of France's religious wars. He swears allegiance to Henry of Navarre. Henry of Navarre, after the St. Bartholomew's massacre, he's basically kept under house arrest for a few years. He manages to escape during a hunting expedition. And Sully, who's 16 at the time, rides across country to join his armies. He begins as a simple infantry soldier, but he displays a consummate military skill, reckless courage, and carries a whole series of war wounds during 14 years of campaigns, which will plague him until the end of his life. And anyway, he, he, he rises up through the ranks and he shows such a talent for logistics, supply, organization. He has a mind like a steel trap, an inordinate love for quantitative data, organization, etc. Whereas Henry of Navarre is a consummate cavalry commander, Sully's real skills lie in siege warfare, logistics, etc. So he takes on a greater and greater role within Henry IV's military campaigns. And then once Henry IV eventually becomes king, those talents are transferred to the, those the formidable organizational skills that Sully showcased during his military campaign are then transferred to the civilian domain. For the first few years, he doesn't really occupy any high-level positions. He's basically, his role is as, is as an interfactional intermediary. Because of his transconfessional background, because he himself is a Protestant, but he has all these family and friendly connections with Catholics, he's very useful as an envoy, as Henry IV is basically trying to bring France's fractured nobility back together. And then in 1596, Henry IV realizes that the situation has seemed sufficiently stable for a Huguenot lord like Sully to occupy a high-ranking position. So he begins to attend meetings of the high-level royal councils. And then from 1599 onwards, he occupies a flurry of ministerial roles and plays an increasingly important role in the formulation of French strategy, even though he isn't the chief minister. So for example, Richelieu and Mazarin are clearly the chief ministers. Henry IV, he preferred to have more of a sort of team of rivals approach. He had a triumvirate of three or four different ministers. But at the end of the day, Sully remains the most influential, if only because of this particular bond that he has with Henry IV from having been his youthful companion, having fought alongside him, etc., that the other ministers do not have. So to go back to the situation between France and Spain during that time, well, from 1595 to 1598, there is a state of open war in between France and Spain. But then there's a peace treaty that's signed in 1598. And thereafter, there are 12 years from 1598 to 1610 when Henry IV dies, is assassinated by a Catholic fanatic. During those 12 years, there, there, there is a state of 
very tenuous peace in between France and Spain that could basically be described as a cold war. In Sully's memoirs, he says that it's a peace clouded with disgust and embittered with reciprocal complaints. So you have a lot of espionage going on. You have the Spanish supporting, covertly supporting rebellious nobles within France. Henry IV secretly meeting with Morisco insurgents within Spain. Morisco is the forcibly converted Muslims of Spain, pledging his, 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 his support to any future uprisings. He's also signing secret deals with the Ottoman Empire, the Supreme Port, to undermine Spain, etc., etc. There are trade wars going on with competitive cycles of tariffs, etc. There's a, there's a very high-profile case of espionage in France when one of Sully's main colleagues, Ministers Clark, has discovered funneling cipher codes to the Spanish. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's a fascinating period, and I think that one that a lot of your listeners would find eerily resonant in many ways with, with other situations of sort of uneasy peace that great powers have known throughout history, whether the Cold War in between you know, the United States and the Soviet Union, or even now, perhaps, in between the U.S. and China. Is it fair to characterize Sully's contribution to this sort of three-stage story that you're walking us through as, 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 as follows, that if the ultimate goal is to gain the upper hand with regard to the Habsburgs in Spain, then first we have to get our house in order, that some level of eternal, internal cohesion has to be achieved. Is that, is that fair as a, a sort of summation or headline? Would that be how you would lead the obituary, strategically speaking? Yes, I think that that's a very good summation. Yes, I'd say that Sully can be perceived as the great centralizer of France. He, he put the kingdom's finances in order. He managed, which was viewed as a miracle at the time, to, to not only get rid of the deficit, but even maintain a slight budgetary surplus, a contingency fund for future military operations. He re-fortified the realm, rearmed the realm, engaged in these massive infrastructure projects that I alluded to earlier, whether it was in the construction of canals, bridges, roads, always with the idea that he needed to strengthen France for a, for, for a future confrontation with the Habsburg in mind. I mean, to re-knit the sinews of French power for a much larger continent-wide struggle. And, and even though the struggle with Spain obviously goes on, he has a vision. I was, I was struck, and I, I confess I've, I've not read this book, and I was fascinated by your, your brief account of it in your, in your chapter, but in his book, he has a sort of a, a vision of European order. And I guess the book's called The Grand Design. Is that right? Tell, tell us a bit about that, or correct me if I've gotten the details wrong here. And, and what is his long-term vision? Sure. So he used, used to actually be very well known amongst 19th century students of geopolitics and European statecraft because he wrote this fabulous multi-volume memoirs, which were widely read. And there is indeed a section of these memoirs, which he calls the Grand Design, or which has since been known as the Grand Design, where he sort of goes into his, he lays out his vision for the future of European order. Now, what's, what's rather interesting about Sui's memoirs is that, so, so he, he actually was forced into retirement in 1611. And the end of his life is actually rather sad, because he spends 30 years enforced retirement. He ends up outliving most of his contemporaries and thus potential critics. And there are times when there are rumors that he may be able to go back into power. He tries sort of getting his foot in the door each time the door is closed. And he ends up having to, you know, 
go back to his drafty castles along the Loire and live, live this life of forced retirement. And during that time, he writes his memoirs. And he even has them printed in his own castle in a printing press because he knows that some people may disagree with some of the observations contained therein. But at the end of the day, he doesn't really need to worry too much about it because he outlives everyone. He dies at the age of 82. Of course, the fact that he outlived most of his contemporaries means that it's harder for historians to fact check some of his observations. And so, for example, the grand design, he claims that this was some grand scheme that Henry IV and he had in mind when he was in power to, re to completely re-engineer the geopolitics of the European continent for the collective good. Now most historians think that this is basically something that Sully projected onto Henry IV, may have even somewhat invented at a time when he was trying to highlight his hawkish credentials during Richelieu's ministerial tenure. But notwithstanding the debates over the accuracy or not of whether Henry IV was laboring under this grand design, it's still an enormously important text that inspired people like Rousseau, Kant, etc. And what it basically says is that France's military might will re-engineer European geopolitics for the collective good basically by severing Spain from its imperial possessions. He says, for example, that the House of Austria, the House of Habsburg, will be, will be divested of the empire and of all the possessions in Germany, Italy, and the Low Countries. In one word, it would be reduced to the sole kingdom of Spain, bounded by the ocean, the Mediterranean, and the Pyrenean Mountains. Europe would be reorganized around 15 political entities, so six hereditary kingdoms, which would be France, England, Spain, Denmark, Sweden, and Lombardy, which Sully suggests would be formed by a fusion of Savoy and the Milanese, five elective states or monarchies, so the papacy, the Holy Roman Empire, Poland, Hungary, and Bohemia, and then four republics, so Venice, of course, Switzerland, Belgium, and a new Italian republic. And the idea would be that there would, it, it would sort of be a little bit like there are elements of it that are not, you know, that are somewhat reminiscent of NATO or the United Nations. So the idea would be that there would be a general council with delegates, with, with, with delegates from these various entities who would be charged with mediating disputes among them, and then also levying funds for a joint crusade against the Turks, which was always the sort of pan-European dream of the period, a way to bring Europeans together, basically channeling all the aggression towards the infidel. And so you, you, you mentioned s separating Spain from its imperial possessions. So that points to what I take to be another through line of this. And we can, we can sort of start to move here from Sully on to Richelieu. But the importance of, of naval power, which I gather was not, not something France was tremendously successful about up until this period, but is a project begun by Sully and then, and then continues? Yes, yes, yes. So, so both Sully and Richelieu were very intent on building up France's naval capacity. So primarily to be able to contest Spanish naval might in the Mediterranean, but also to disrupt its lines of communication, its sea lines of communication, imperil its trade. Sully also suggests at one point in his memoirs that it was necessary for France to build up its navy to be able to if need be, what he calls Spain's economic heart and entrails, which were its transatlantic uh, imperial possessions, its colonies, etc., to disrupt its silver bullion shipments. Um, there are some quite interesting differences of opinion in between Richelieu and Sully when it comes to France's own imperial expansion, though. Sully 
didn't really believe that it was that it was worth the cost or the effort to try and expand into Canada. So at one point he he says that when it comes to France's costly raise into Canada's frigid expanses, there are no kind of riches to be expected from all those countries of the new world, which lie beyond the 40th degree of latitude. He was much more focused on building up France's industrial and agricultural self-sufficiency. And he viewed it as a bit of a fool's errand, um, engaging in these very costly expeditions to the new world. Richelieu was somewhat more congenial to France's imperial expansion, even though he also was very much focused on the European theater. Well, when it comes to whether they were actually successful, there's a very good book written by a historian called Alan James, who I believe is at King's College, on Richelieu's naval development programs. And he points out that even though it wasn't an, an unvarnished success, an untrammeled success, there, there was always a huge amount of competition in terms of funding and priorities, obviously, to, uh, to resource the continental theater operations. Nevertheless, by the end of Richelieu's tenure, he had managed to build up a navy which, which overshadowed that of England at the time and which rivaled Spain's in the Mediterranean. So if, if a naval program is one line of continuity, let's take another aspect of, of sort of national cohesion, the attitude towards the Huguenots and to, to religious stability. Is there, is there more continuity there between Sully and Richelieu or is there, are there important differences? Yes. So two broad constituencies had emerged within France's national security elites during the wars of religion. The the bon français or politique on the one side, who argued in favor of religious toleration, national unity, and a vigorous policy of containment towards the Habsburgs. And then on the other side, the Devo, who were more who were more intransigent and intolerant, one could add, when it came to the defense of Catholicism and to the suppression of heresy at home what they perceived as being heresy at home, and, and to sometimes even argued in favor of accommodation or alignment with the Habsburgs in the name of, in the, in the name of shared confessional beliefs. Sully, of course, was a Huguenot. Richelieu is, is more fascinating in this regard, and one of the reasons why he's intrigued generations of historians is precisely the fact that he was a devout man of the church but yet highly willing to subsidize and sponsor Protestant foes of the Habsburg to advance France's interests. And he, he actually, this, this was in part a product of his, of his family background. So his, his, his father had displayed a transconfessional form of loyalty by agreeing to serve under, the Hen to serve under Henry IV even prior to his conversion to Catholicism. And then also he, he started off his early career as a young bishop in, in the war-torn province of Lusson in the Poitou region, which was a very confessionally mixed province. And he, I mean, some of his first sermons and texts, he argued that Huguenot and Catholic neighbors should be united in affection and loyalty to their king. And, and so there was an element of religious toleration threaded throughout his thinking. This did not mean that he didn't think that Protestants were, you know, misguided and erroneous in their beliefs. He wrote theological treatises on the power of conversion, strategies to deploy in converting Huguenots, but he believed first and foremost that they should be converted by the power of reason rather than by the power of arms. Where his attitude would shift, however, is, is when he deemed Huguenots to be posing a political threat. 
to, to French royal authority. So, for example, the first years of his tenure, he was very much occupied in the repression of a mass Huguenot insurrection, which centered on the siege of La Rochelle, which was a Huguenot bastion. But, but the main reason behind his repression of that insurrection was not so much the fact that they labored under, uh, un, under divergent beliefs, but the fact that they were challenging royal authority. And as he said, they were seeming to form a state within the state that needed to be eradicated. I, I almost hesitate to ask this question because this, the, a theme of this episode seems to be that each question we discuss could be its own episode, indeed its own series. And I, I admire the, the sort of fluent way in which you can navigate through all these things and identify how they relate to one another so so quickly. But we should talk about the Thirty Years' War, I think, as we as we talk about Richelieu. Give give us a sense of the the, the challenge and first of all, tell us what it was briefly, as, as briefly as you can. And and what is the challenge and what is the opportunity presented to France by this adjacent conflagration? Sure. Well, the, the, the Thirty Years' War, which traditionally has been defined as commencing in 1618 and ending with, with the, the Treaties of Westphalia in 1648, as a series of Europe-wide confessional wars, largely confessional wars, in between Protestant and Catholic powers, the epicenter of which was in the Holy Roman Empire. France only really actively... So France France is obviously very heavily involved throughout the Thirty Years' War, but only actually actively enters the conflict by formally declaring war on Spain in 1635. Prior to that, France is pursuing what Sully called La Guerre au Renard, the Fox's War, and what Richelieu called La Guerre Couverte, covert war, basically sponsoring and subsidizing not only Protestant, but also sometimes Catholic rivals of the Habsburg. The overarching goal remains to weaken the Habsburgs. That said, the religious fervor that suffuses the international context of the time, the Thirty Years' War, of course permeates French society. So there are a lot of concerns that what is happening outside France, that degree of religious hatred and polarization, may come once again to reinfect the French body politic and cause it to slide back into an unending cycle of brutal religious wars. But of course, France had already gone through many, many decades of religious wars. So yes, the, the, those types of conflicts were, were already part of the French experience. Another thing I think that's important to add and that somewhat distinguishes Richelieu's tenure from that of Sully or even some of his successors is that the period under which both Richelieu and Mazarin were operating was at the height of the Counter-Reformation. So it was a period of reinvigorated Catholicism throughout Europe, but especially in France. And that made it all the more challenging for both Richelieu and Mazarin to, to sell their, their foreign policy agenda to the French public and to French devos in particular, because there was this upsurge in religious vibrancy and in French Catholicism in particular, which meant that Richelieu, in order to advance and defend his policies, which were fiercely contested throughout the entirety of his tenure, and particularly the first six, six years of his ministeriate, he had to surround himself with what some historians have described as a politico-literary -lit strike force of political theorists and propagandists who basically published these series of pamphlets defending the 
the, the moral virtues behind Richelieu's foreign policy, as well as the realpolitik aspects to it. And so whether it's Italy or it's now, you know, effectively Germany, it's the, the fates of these weak, I almost hesitate to say states because I'm not sure the, the word is quite right, but these, these weak zones of Europe are, are sort of the, the battlegrounds or among the important battlegrounds that Franco-Spanish rivalry is playing out. What is the resolution that, that France is seeking here? Is, are there some, uh, the whole situation is so complex. Are there sort of principles you can point to? What is good for France and bad for Spain, say, in the outcome of disorder in the Holy Roman Empire? Sure. Well, I think how small to medium-sized states position themselves under the sort of overarching framework of this rivalry is absolutely fascinating. There's, there's this great treatise that was written by the, by the Duke of Rohan, who was a great Protestant lord and commander during the period in question. He was actually Sully's son-in-law, and he wrote this treatise entitled The Interest of Princes and States in Christendom. And he describes how Franco-Spanish rivalry had really become the structuring force across Christendom, with both states, I quote, forming the two poles from which stem the pressures for war and peace upon other states with France seeking to play the counterpoise to Spanish ambitions and the princes of Europe, he writes, attaching themselves to one or the other according to their interests. Some of these states negotiated this, this uncomfortable bipolarity very savvily. Savoy, for example, which was positioned in between France and Spanish possessions in Italy, its series of rulers were known for being particularly adept at leveraging Franco-Spanish rivalry to their benefit. Some of the most interesting net assessments in a way we have of both France and Spain at the period come from the Venetians, who are also very savvy diplomats and, and very good at sort of assessing the shifting balance of power throughout Europe. When it came to their actual overarching aims or how they frame them to other European states, during the period in question, France is continuously trying to position itself as the valiant guarantor of smaller states' interests, as the defender of individual state freedoms against what it refers to as the Habsburg dynasty's desire for universal monarchy. And of course, as I describe in the chapter, as, as the balance of power begins to shift and France's diplomatic and military successes begin to rack up, then you begin to see elements of hubris, unfortunately, creep into France's grand strategy under Mazarin. And then, of course, under Louis XIV, as we know, France is now the reviled hegemon of Europe. And in a lot of texts in the period, we have critiques of France's desire of universal monarchy rather than Spain's uh, desire for universal monarchy. Yeah, focus on the liberty of small states tends to be the the tactic adopted by those seeking to to build coalitions against hegemons or prospective hegemons. I guess this remains a focus of the British, you know, through through to much more recent days and in some ways of, of the United States today. Are this and so are the Spanish then in in response, are are they as are they similarly pragmatic as are as, as the French with regard to, you know, confessional affiliation? Or are they somewhat more ideological in that regard? How, how do they conceive of a, of, a, of a beneficial outcome in these conflicts? So without wanting to engage in gross simplification, I would argue that, 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 that the Spanish are more ideological in, in their sort of touted defense of Catholicism. 
In large part because of the confessional makeup of Spain. Spain was not a confessionally mixed country to the degree that France was, and Protestant ideas never really managed to gain root in Spain, unlike in France. At the same time, though, there were moments when the Spanish supported Huguenot insurrections in France. So, for example, during the first few years of Richelieu's tenure, Spain actively considers lending support to the Huguenot insurrection in France. The major difference, though, I think, is that they don't frame this as being part of state policy. It's, it's not conducted in a systematic fashion. If it is done, it's done covertly, somewhat shamefully. It's not outwardly defended in the way that it is under Richelieu and Mazarin in government-sponsored propaganda and pamphlets. And it's certainly not conducted on the same scale and in such a systematic fashion uh, and with the huge levels of subsidies that, that the French pour into you know, the coffers of the United Provinces and Sweden, for example, sure. and their wars against both the Holy Roman Empire and against Spain. So I just, and forgive forgive the way I'm going to frame this question, but I, I will defend myself by saying as, as hosting a podcast, gross oversimplification is, is what I do. It's, my, it's my, my stock and trade, at least with this hat on. So is it, would it, would it I'm just trying to, there's so much complexity to this. I'm just trying to sure. understand it in, in a straightforward way. Is, is the following statement somewhat fair, or if it falls short, please tell me where it does, that Spain on some level sees itself as, you know, the defender of the faith, the defender of the church. It turns out the defense of the faith, the defense of the church just happens to be more or less coterminous with Spanish power. What's one, what's good for the one is good for the other. And therefore France from their perspective is a sort of troublemaking, amoral, immoral power seeking to elevate itself by making trouble for, for the faith and also for, for Spain. Is that, is that somewhere around the target? Sure. Yeah. I think that that's, yes, a very good summation. In both cases, material and ideological interests were profoundly intertwined. There were evidently inner contradictions, but I think that a lot of the statesmen of the period genuinely believed in the moral aspect of, uh, of what they were trying to accomplish. Of course, what's interesting is that from both perspectives, they were the status quo power dealing with a revisionist spoiler. So, of course, for the Spaniards, as you were saying, France was this ruthlessly immoral disruptor of Catholic Christendom. Um, for the French, on the other hand, accustomed throughout the centuries to being the natural ruling hegemon of Europe, however, it was because of the size of France, its, its larger demography, its agricultural wealth, etc., the meteoric ascent of the Habsburg dynasty which they viewed as being fueled by its, an, an unsatiable quest for riches and its desire for universal monarchy. Well, that was the historical aberration and source of instability. And that was one that required urgent and perhaps even forcible correction, which is what Sully lays out in his grand design. You know, we need to like bound these guys back to their natural limits. And so the challenge for them was, was, was twofold. So First, Paris needed to displace Madrid as Europe's lead power and as its prime mover. And then if possible, it needed to isolate or sever the Spanish Habsburgs from the Austrian dynastic branch. And second, the Bourbon monarchy needed to somehow persuade lesser European powers to buy into its vision for regional security by proving that it could play a stabilizing and arbitral role as a benevolent lead power more open to confessional mixity throughout Europe. 
And so that was the idea that Paris would be simultaneously and perhaps somewhat counterintuitively both one of the scales in the balance and the holder of the said balance. And somewhat inevitably, you, you see this new desire for equilibrium enter into tension with the more sort of ancient quest for primacy and hegemony. And I argue that eventually it will come to collapse under the weight of these inner contradictions. Well, let's talk about that and, and come to the, the third and, and final phase here, which is Mazarin and, and Louis XIV, early sure. stages of Louis XIV's reign. So we'll talk, talk about ex exactly that. How, Mazarin, who, who seems to me, of the, feel free, of course, to, to push back on this, but it seems to me of the three strategists, the figure who, of, of whom you were most critical, he, he both is the perpetrator of the grand finale, of a successful finale of this century-long rise of France to a, to a kind of primacy, but then, as you say, sows the seeds along with his boss of its downfall. So, so how, how, how do these two things happen together? Sure. So I do think that he was prodigiously talented. He was a master negotiator, fierce intellect. He was famously described as Richelieu's, having a, a mind sufficient to govern four empires. Remarkable life story as well. He, he was born in Italy. He spent his youth serving leading Italian noble families, the Colonos and the Barbarinis. And he initially came to Richelieu's attention when he was serving as a, as a negotiator, a diplomat for the papacy. And he impressed Richelieu during their bilateral negotiations, during the Mantuan War, with his, his charm, his sparkling verve, his quickness. And thereafter, Richelieu began to sort of slightly lure him into France's orbit, pressing for him to be named as the papal nuncio, the papal ambassador, basically, to Paris, and then eventually giving him letters of naturalization. And then he went from Giulio Mazzarini to Jules Mazarin. His name was Gallicized. And yeah, so in the end, in 1643, following Louis XIII's death, he becomes the lead advisor, chief minister, basically, to Anne of Austria. Louis XIII's widow and the regent of France. Louis XIV was only four or five at the time. So he takes on this lead role that most people were not expecting. He had been carefully and quietly cultivating the Queen Mother for some time. Most people were expecting that it would be one of the French ministers who would take that role. So it was quite a surprise. And I think from the get-go in his defense, he was handicapped by the fact that he was something of an outsider. So first of all, there was a very long tradition of anti-Italian xenophobia in France. Italians were associated with a certain kind of original decadence with Machiavellianism. There had been, you know, the Catherine de Medici, Marie de, de, uh, de Medici, who were both unpopular regents within France. There had been a previous Italian chief minister, Concino Concini, Concini, who was assassinated during Louis XIII's reign, who was deeply unpopular. So there was this element of stigma, which came with the fact that he was not French. And then there was just the fact that because he was a relative outsider, despite his prodigious intellect, the fact that he spoke several languages, Spanish, Italian, French, he had perhaps a lesser degree of granular understanding of the functioning of its arcane institutions, power networks, etc. He was also far more interested in, in foreign policy than in domestic policy. So he had a tendency to delegate a lot of the management of domestic affairs to other people because either 
he wasn't interested by it or he didn't necessarily fully understand it. He was also more corrupt than both Richelieu and Sully. He amassed an enormous amount of wealth. No minister ever amassed the same degrees of wealth that Mazarin did under the Ancien Regime. But he also did it for self-preservation and for paying off various people and for having his own emergency fund to fund military diplomatic operations, for example. So yes, I think, and if one was to sort of engage in a, in a rapid fire evaluation of Mazarin, I would say highly capable negotiator, prodigious intellect, but perhaps insufficient understanding of the necessary of, of the necessity of reconciling internal and external balancing the complexity of French domestic politics and a, uh, an appetite for venality or corruption that was perhaps excessive even by the standards of the time. When it comes to the actual implementation of his foreign policy, as I argue in his chapter, the first few years are clearly crowned with a fair amount of success. But then I think that there are elements of hubris that begin to slip in. And if you want, we can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, just just briefly, and I, I want to be respectful of your time here, and I, I also want to get to contemporary relevance. But you know, this this period concludes with with Westphalia, which you know, the, I, somebody who has thought a bit about the sort of classic Kissingerian view of it as as the foundation of you know the modern state system and concepts of sovereignty. It's fascinating to hear it arrived at through this context as something that is sort of in the interest of the counter hegemonic power. You know, which is which is a Probably not that uh, unusual way of looking at it, but it's fresh, at least to me. So, so we, we we sort of we win. We being France, France, France achieves its goals over the course of these three careers and multiple sovereigns. But but then, just at that moment of success, there begins to be the movement towards you know sort of the 18th century France that I am I'm personally more familiar with, probably because of my I know a little bit more about British history than I know about French and and Spanish history. And so one you know you. You grow up with some knowledge of, of of a hegemonic France that has to be contained. How does that how does that actually come to pass? Sure. So the real challenge for both France and Spain during this period is that security managers on both sides of the equation are acutely aware of the fact that that their respective powers simply do not have the the finances, the internal solidity, societal resilience to weather the kind of protracted war that they're engaged in. So they're basically both in a waiting game, hoping that the other party will eventually collapse under the weight of these internal pressures. For a while, it very much seems that France has the upper hand, but I'd argue Mazarin makes several errors of judgment, and the most grievous of which is that he approaches the Spanish with an offer of a secret trade. So he offers to trade French-occupied territories in Catalonia with the Spanish Netherlands. But he does this without alerting France's Dutch allies to the fact that he is proposing this deal. He argues at the time against his advisors, who are, who are at Munster and Osnabrück, Westphalia, that this would be a masterstroke. It would basically and centuries of French vulnerability to attacks through the Low Countries along its northwestern frontier. He writes, the acquisition of the Spanish Netherlands would give the city of Paris an impregnable rampart, and it could then truly be called the heart of France. So much blood and money would be well spent if provinces were annexed to the crown of France, which in the past had provided the means to individual rulers not only to resist France 
but to trouble her to the extent we know. The Spanish rather cleverly reveal this to the Dutch, who are absolutely incensed, of course, durably alienates them, and they end up concluding a separate peace deal with the Spanish at the beginning of 1648 that allows the Spanish to redirect their forces along that front towards operations in France. Meanwhile, tensions are mounting within France. Dissatisfaction is mounting both towards Mazarin personally and then towards the the growing fiscal pressures that are being put on France to sustain this this, this multi-front war. And one Paris-based Spanish agent writing at the time writes, the French are running out of funds and all of them are beginning to unite against the cardinal. If any, we can continue to fight for another two years, we shall witness a general revolution against this great red devil. And that's basically what happens in 1648 with the series of civil wars known as La Fronde, which start off as relatively broad-based movement of Parisian revolt of protest against Mazarin after his arrest of two members of the French Parlement, but that soon turn into something else and basically morph into a series of baronial wars leading nobles. Of course, this greatly weakens France's military position, its negotiating position at Westphalia. Mazarin is forced to flee into exile twice before eventually coming back uh, in 1652. And by 1652, many of France's most strategically positioned frontier forts have been recaptured by the Spanish. One of France's best generals, the Prince of Condé, is actually, has actually defected and is leading Spain's armies to great effect. So it really set France back. And a lot of people blame Mazarin at the time, saying, well, you know, if you had shown less hubris, if you had negotiated a peace deal earlier, we wouldn't have been at war with Spain for another 11 years following the Peace of Westphalia. There's so much more here we could discuss, but I, I thought we would conclude, if you wouldn't mind, you used the phrase earlier, so I'll, I'll, I'll revive it here. So in rapid fire fashion, sure. what, what are the lessons of the, the history we have just gone through for, say, an American policymaker today? Sure. I think, obviously, as, as we enter an era characterized by the revival of extended great power competition, industrial-scale warfare and unabashed mercantilistic approaches, really, it's worth looking back at other periods marked by protracted multi-generational warfare. And this, as I mentioned at the outset of our talk, I think is one of the richest and most interesting periods to explore. Issues such as food security, industrial resiliency, trade tariffs and trade wars, proxy wars, foreign political interference, espionage, what have you, vigorous internal debates over grand strategy, force adjudication in between different theaters and stuff. The, the 150-year-old Franco-Spanish rivalry has all of that and in spades. And plus, I just add, I mean, on a somewhat more frivolous note, perhaps, the, the, the memoranda we, we have from the various protagonists of this conflict, that diplomatic correspondence, the dispatches from various ambassadors, they're also just a lot of fun to read. They're often beautifully written in a style that unfortunately we uh, no longer ne ne necessarily write in. They're uneerily, uncannily resonant, I think, when you read them, when it comes to laying out the various issues that these people are grappling with, unerringly human. So it's also just a lot of fun to read and study. And finally, I think that this is a period which is particularly intellectually rewarding to explore, if only because I think it points to the complexity of human decision-making 
and the manner in which states and statesmen continuously grapple with how to balance their ideological or moral preferences along with their more naked geopolitical interests. This is something we touched on a little bit earlier during our discussion. It is possible to hold two competing ideas in tension at the same time. It is possible to, to be very much wedded to the advancement of your country's geopolitical interests and at the same time be confronted with a whole set of ideological and moral quandaries. And I think one of the issues I had going into this is that I was, was, was a little bit frustrated by some of the conventional wisdom in some quarters, especially in, or in some disciplines like political science, the notion that the Congress of Westphalia, people like Richelieu and his contemporaries marked the clear triumph of geopolitics over moral or confessional interests and the advent of a new, more secularized and coolly rationalized form of foreign policy. I think that's like a neat narrative, but it's also the myth also doesn't do justice to the beautiful complexity and messiness, both of that era and of states' motivations in general. I, I think, you know, if you want to understand why, for example, um, a country such as Iran would sponsor and support a Sunni extremist outfit like Al Qaeda in, in their quest for regional supremacy or in their war against the United States and the kind of competing moral and geopolitical quandaries various states may consistently entertain in the formation of their foreign policy. Looking back to this period, I think, really helps us acquire perhaps a more nuanced and fine-grained understanding of timeless human motivations and statecraft. I don't know if that's a good summation, but... It's a, it's a fantastic place to end for now, at least. Skander Rahman, Axon Johnson, fellow at Johns Hopkins SICE, contributor to Newmakers of Modern Strategy, author of any number of excellent pieces on, on this period, on Roman strategy and, and grand strategic thought. I look forward to your book on this subject and uh, on many other books I hope to come teaching us to, to understand ourselves better by, by understanding others. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.